Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I don't really have talks with the sponsors because I'm not wasting my time doing that, but I'm going to my organic relationships who've already invested. That's who I'm talking to, but that's where I think where you need to get to. So the end game is not talking to sponsors. The end game is building relationships. So the focus investors should have, especially passive investors, is building relationships with sophisticated, pure passive investors. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is, where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim. We are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. Today, I'm pleased to have Lane Kawaoka with us. He owns over 4,500 rental units and is the leader of the Hui Deal Pipeline Club, which has acquired over $600 million of real estate by syndicating over $70 million of private equity since 2016. Lane partners with investors who want to build their passive portfolio, but are too busy to invest actively. He's also the host of the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Lane, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. Love everybody. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So the, the way I usually like to start out is just if you could tell us your journey, how you, how you got into real estate, how you got into syndications, how you got into passive, just kind of the whole, the whole, uh, your whole journey, how you got here. 
Yeah, so I kind of followed what they call this the linear path, right? Like I, my parents taught me to be really frugal with my money, buy a house to live in, study hard at school. Um, for some reason, I was good at math and science when I was eight or nine. So I eventually became an engineer. And that's what I went to college for and started working. And, and again, following all this dogma of buying a house to live in, which I don't necessarily think is a great idea. I bought that house and because I was working on the road all the time, I just decided to rent it out because it was kind of silly for a young a young guy in his 20s to be only home to enjoy this house on Saturday. But that was where things got started. Uh, that was back in 2009 in Seattle. I quickly realized like, wow, if I just kept doing this a few more times, so eventually be able to replace part of my salary and then you know, eventually quit my job. And that's kind of the journey I started back in 2009. So how did you get from renting your own place to doing apartment syndications and, and doing other, uh, you know, mobile home syndications and all that? What was the, uh, how did you learn about that stuff and, and what made you want to do that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I didn't get into like the syndications until like probably eight years later. I mean, so I bought that first house in Seattle, bought another duplex. Around 2012, I realized, hey, sophisticated investors invest for cash flow as opposed to investing in you know high priced primary markets like California, Seattle, Hawaii. So I moved my portfolio from the Seattle rentals and I eventually had 11 rentals in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, which I picked up turnkey. So that was around 2015, and I had a good salary. Um, so that was my highest best best use at the time. And just like you know, most passive investors, you you realize at the end of the day, like what is your highest and best use? We all have to trade time for money, but where can we get the highest ROI for our time? Right. A lot of people, non-passive investors, they just don't make that much money at their day job. So that's why they have to flip houses and wholesale houses. But I kind of quickly realized my role early was to just suck it up. I didn't really like my engineering job, but I made you know six figures doing that. And I just plowed all my money into passive investments. So a lot of those like first 10 years, I was saving at least 50, 80 grand of my salary, putting two investments. And then around 2015, when I had 11 of those rentals, I realized like these turnkey rentals or any rentals in general are kind of a pain, right? As most passive investors realize, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of headache. If anybody's looking at buying turnkey rentals, I mean, it's cool to get get your net worth up to a quarter million, half a million dollars net worth. But when you become a credit investor, I mean, just don't want to deal with all the headaches. And just to give people a little insight with 11 rentals, I had maybe an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe, like a tree falling on the house, a big plumbing repair every quarter, which is cool because I have property managers doing all my dirty work for me, but all for what, $3,000 a month of passive cash flow? That's not nearly as much. I would probably need to three X that, so three times the exception. So this is when I kind of started to go on this journey. All right, what's after this? What do people do? I mean, at the time, I had the idea of you know getting ten golden tickets, right? The ten Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, and you, know, you think you're all cool because you're like, ooh, I'm gonna get ten in my spouse's name, and then I'm twenty of these things. But then I started to join different masterminds, get around other high net worth accredited passive investors, and I realized this new world of private placements and syndications and you know investing more for taxes and you know a lot of the the wealth building strategies that aren't that difficult and aren't out of the reach of the normal you know average joe out there it's just very counterintuitive so that's kind of how i kind of parlayed into you know, the credit investing and into a bunch of apartment deals and today i sponsor and syndicate um, 
apartments is what I kind of specialize in, but also invest in all kinds of stuff too. And do, are you still in those uh, turnkeys or did you sell them? I unloaded them, a lot of them in 2017. Um, I still got a couple of them because like, I just can't sell them because my boots on the ground team just are so unresponsive. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is typical. And it, and it, it just, man, if, if I would, I would be so upset, like 2015, I would be so upset now that those things are just sitting vacant, but they're just quite honestly a waste of my time to kind of spend any bandwidth on it as opposed to my apartment deals. Yeah, I, I sold all of them. I had the same experience where I was buying turnkey properties and slowly realized that it's, um, it's passive cash flow maybe, but it's definitely a passive headache that becomes less passive when you're managing the managers and you know, they're not nearly as professional as the syndicators who are managing these large apartment complexes. And that's what got me out of turnkeys into more of the, the syndication models. So you said you're investing in other assets. What, what other asset classes are you interested in other than the, the multifamily? Well, I mean, I invest in stuff outside of what I do. The stuff I do is like the workforce housing, class B, C, secondary and tertiary markets, workforce housing apartments. So, you know, just like the whole premise, like you don't want to buy your own company stock. It's just not a prudent thing to do. You know, like people buy their, you know, when they work for Enron, work buy Enron stock. Like it's just not a prudent thing to do. So I see it the same way, but 80% of my portfolio is my own home cooking, something I, I control. Um, that I need, but like the other 20%, I mean, it's still within that workforce housing category. Like what is the stuff that's going to be recession proof or do pretty well in recessions because they're basic necessities that cater towards that lower middle class that's growing. So things like mobile home parks, I'm still looking for self-storage operators, um, not really sold on any of the, the, the people that are you normally see out there. I like assisted living. I just don't think the silver wave is here yet. Um, I'm starting to dabble a little bit in like oil and gas, more for the tax benefits. And then the life settlements is something I'm looking at now because I'm you know, kind of getting a little bit more closer to the end game number. I mean, life settlements are pretty much the most guaranteed thing out there. Trouble is the returns aren't that great and there's no tax benefits to that. But you know, just trying to I think that's as a passive investor, like you just kind of got to try things and more importantly, try the operator out and kind of move and take these little test investments and see how things go. So when you say test the, the operator, how do you vet a sponsor? How do you figure out if this, if someone is the person you want to invest in or with? Yeah. So for me, like vetting these deals is like 50% the number, 50% the operator. I know how to underwrite apartments, mobile home parks. Eh, you know, I'll be honest. I don't really know how to do that. I can, I can jam it into my multifamily analyzer because it's sort of the same thing, but I'm I'm not the expert with that type of stuff. I don't know all the nuances. So if it's an apartment building, I'm going to get the P&Ls and rent rolls, throw it into my analyzer and see what kind of deal assumptions the operator is using. The most important ones are what is the reversion cap rate? You know, I want to see a half a point, full point increase on that. I want to see what they're modeling for first year occupancy or economic occupancy throughout the, the the deal here's one through five. Um, I want to see what the annual rent increases are, the annual escalators, right? I better not see anything over three percent or higher. You know, these are kind of the red flags that I'm going to look through uh, before I even waste my time talking to a sponsor. I mean, a lot of times I think people they're like they run around, they talk to sponsors, and they kind of go to the podcast land, which to me is some of the worst places to go to find deals to invest in. You're just finding people who are good at making podcasts and making uh, internet marketing. 
I mean, I don't really like to talk to people because I'm an introvert, I'm an engineer, and I'm like, I'm going to like spend my time on the numbers because that helps me filter out, right? Like if a guy is using a no reversion cap rate or worse off decreasing the reversion cap rate from the entrance, I ain't going to talk to the dude, right? I'm not going to waste my time doing that. But I kind of rely on my network these days. I mean, the first deal I went to as a syndication, I lost all my money because it wasn't that gold standard level of referral. Some random IRA custodian said, hey, you know, here's somebody that we've worked with in the past. And the guy ran off of my money. Come to find out that that guy didn't, he's just a salesman, right? The guys who work for that self-directed IRA companies are just sales guys. A lot of those guys don't even have their own skin in the game. So, but I didn't know any better. Um, and I think for most passive investors, it requires you maybe three years at least to really start to build your network of pure passive investors happen to probably be accredited investors too that actually invest in this stuff so i mean a lot of times i just rely on my network these days to kind of have a starting point but if it's apartment due i'm running the numbers and just kind of starting at that point can you go back you talked about a reversion cap rate and i just want to make sure all of our listeners understand what that is can you explain to us what the reversion cap rate is and why you want it higher you know half point to a point higher on the exit than the purchase cap rate yeah, so this is very separate of like, you know, people talk about what is the cap rate of the deal, you know, how much money it's making. This is like your deal assumption. So the reversion cap rate is the same thing as your exit cap rate. We don't know what the economy or, or the market is going to be in the future, right? It's a wad ass guess. So what we do is we assume that we're selling it into a worse market or a softer market, right? Pause there. Like, makes sense, right? Like, we want to assume that like the, the valuation is lower. So what we want to do is increase the reversion cap rate. And this is very counterintuitive because you're, like, you're trying to be conservative, you're increasing it. Trust me, if you have a calculator, um, when you increase the reversion cap rate, you get less money for the amount of net offered and income you have. So what you want to do is you want to find the prevailing cap rate of that asset in that submarket at the current time. And typical rule of thumb is to increase that for the reversion cap rate half a percent to a full percent Um, used to be you know you increase it by a full percent but that ain't happening these days because a lot of sponsors not even doing this so it's really it's hard to compare apples to apples when everybody's using different assumptions right it's like like i tell a lot of people it's like dude like i can change whatever number on the spreadsheet to have you look at a deal at what return you're looking for if it's 110 percent you're looking in five years i'll just change this one number right so for a passive investor this is very important. I mean, this is not underwriting like specialist type of stuff. These are basic things that you should be able to spot check through the, the pitch deck um, to make sure that this is being done properly. Because let's just say a deal, you look at a deal and it's 100% return in five years, but they're not doing any inversion cap rate increase. They're not assuming that they're selling it into a worst off market. But now I increase it by half a percent because I want to be conservative. Your 100% return in five years, just because I've done the sensitivity analysis so many times, probably goes down to like 30, 60% return in five years. It's a big deal. Some of these guys assume that the, that the exit cap rate or the reversion cap rate, the, the sales price is going to be lower, which is even worse, even more aggressive, right? I think that's just like sound underwriting practices, right? But, you know, if a sponsor has people lining up to invest with them, I mean, who am I to say, right? They can do whatever they want. But the way I, I want to look at it as a passive investor, the analogy is like, these things are like airplanes. I want to go into the airplane with at least a full tank of gas because when the airplanes take off, 
nobody knows if it crashed in the mountains or made it to its destination. And things happen, right? And and I've been in a lot of deals where things happen, right? Unknown, unforeseen conditions happen. So, but you want to at least get into a deal that is underwritten properly, so things can mess up and you can still get the destination. But th- that kind of makes sense, like you know, the version capital. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that makes complete sense. I think the the other thing that is interesting to me is most people I talk to, they look at the operator first, and then the market, and then the deal. And you're kind of doing it the other way in that you're looking at the deal first to determine if you even want to talk to the operator. So that, that's a really interesting way of screening out a bunch of operators that are going to send you deals that you wouldn't invest in anyway. So I, I like that approach. Well, it's a paradigm shift, right? Like, I mean, you listen to most podcasts out there. They tell you, oh, it's all the operator, right? We're all the market. Well, I hate to be a jerk. But it's like they're assuming that you guys don't know. They don't have a clue on anything to do with underwriting or numbers, which most, let's face it, most accredited investors are unsophisticated. You guys don't even have the rep rules. You don't have the P&Ls. I don't know how you guys are investing. Right? You're looking at the pictures or something. I don't know. Right. I mean, let's face it. This is the game. Right. And as it, a sponsor gets more and more institutional, their investor base gets less and less sophisticated. So even more so it's like, I look at some of these institutional investor decks and it's like, dude, they're not even talking about the deal. They're just, half of the deck is they're just talking about why investing in apartments is a good idea. Like, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I remember drinking the Kool-Aid, show me the numbers, right? Show me how you underwrote this deal so I want to, you know, troubleshoot it. But I'm kind of one of those annoying investors that they probably don't want to work with. So, you know, I think it's a paradigm shift, right? Like if, if you don't know the numbers, that's why that, that advice is going out to you guys where focus on the operator, focus on the numbers, right? Because you don't have a freaking clue on if we even to give you all the numbers. Right. And I think it's interesting because the way you're talking about it, you can screen out a bunch of operators and not have to call them up and decide if you know, like, and trust them because you've already seen that, oh, their, their reversion cap rate is the same as the entry cap rate. So you're not interested or they have a 6% annual increase in rent the first, the first year. So you're not interested. So you know, that, hey, that, that's an operator I won't want to deal with. And then I think you can answer this, but after you've screened them and you want to, and you're like, okay, I've seen one of their deals. Now I want to invest. You're still going to go and vet them and see if you know and like them and trust them and look at their experience and all the other stuff. You're just using the, the first deal as a pre-screen to see if you even want to call them. Is that accurate? That's correct. But I mean, I mean, here, here's kind of where I differ. And maybe I'm being a little extremist here, but like, Every person you talk to on the phone, I mean, they're going to tell you every every song and dance. I mean, I'm a syndicator. I can talk about this stuff in my sleep to people. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody who talks to me is going to have a good time, you know, talking story. And I would think that every, like, professional salesman or investor relations staff should, should leave the person on the other hand, like, feeling warm and fuzzy inside. So, therefore, it's like, it's a waste of time, right? It's just like, oh, can you give me a list of references? Sure, I'm gonna hand you a set of like bad references. That'd be just that'd be like stupid, right? <laughs> like it's a waste of time. And you know, to answer your second question there, like I don't really have talks with the sponsors because I'm not wasting my time doing that, but I'm going to my organic relationships who've already invested with the guy. That's who I'm talking to, right? But that's I mean, it's it's kind of bad advice because most people listening like they may or may not have that set up right but that's where i think where you need to get to so the end game is not talking to sponsors the end game is building relationships so the focus 
investors should have, especially passive investors, is building relationships with sophisticated, pure passive investors. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That is that's what left field investors is is all about, right? Building a network, building a community, so that we can all refer each other to the sponsors that that we think do the the best job. And a quality referral from somebody that you know, like, and trust is better than listening to a podcast or you know just Google searching syndicators because you're going to come up with, as you said, the best marketers and not the best operators. So I, I really like that that perspective. Yeah, and I've heard things about your guys' community. I, I think I have a couple guys in there, but this is you guys aren't doing this. This is what other people are doing. Like you have to be careful of like talking to passive investors that kind of pose as smart investors, because you know we're all rich people, and rich people have a thing with ego, right? So they always want to sound like they they know everybody and know everything. So there's a lot of people out there that haven't invested Jack. They're like, oh yeah, gotta be careful which name I use. Jerry, Jerry, they're a really good sponsor team, right? They're really good. You know, I mean, but you come to find out, like that guy who just said that, just saying it so he can sound cool and he's going with what we call group think, right? Which you have to be careful. And so I would ask so-and-so Jerry, like, oh, can you tell me why you like them, right? Have you invested? Oh, you haven't invested with them yet. Okay, well, what can you tell me in the pitch deck that gives you a reason to believe that they are conservative underwriting? Right. If they cannot rattle off like basic things like reversion cap rate or economic vacancy, what are the assumptions? Then I'm like, dude, what are you like pointing to? Are you just like going off like Facebook likes or like how many reviews on podcast land? Like, what are you going off of? Right. And then at that point, you don't interact with that gentleman anymore. And you find the next guy, right? You're trying to find somebody who has some substantial types of like thesis of why somebody is good, even though they haven't invested with them, even, even though they don't have that track record. I think it's a starting point because what you see in a lot of these other groups is like people just want to sound cool and be in the it club. Yeah. And, and that that's part of your analysis on any person, right? Is you have to figure out who you're talking to, whether it's a sponsor or somebody in your community and make sure that you're talking to someone, as you said, who has things figured out and, and knows what they're doing and not just somebody who wants to show off. That, that makes sense to me. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. 
By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. Switching gears a little bit, you know, I've I listened to a couple of, of your podcasts and, and some of your talks, and and you've been talking about retirement accounts and, and why you recommend against using those as, as investment vehicles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like a few reasons. I mean, I think the big one is like when you invest in retirement accounts, sure, I think everybody knows we can self-direct them and go into real estate. You know, the problem I have with the general 401k is you're stuck in a cafeteria of options. And the analogy I use is like, if you guys had a high school like mine's, like we're all stuck with the cafeteria of like the, you know, the school lunch, right? Which is more expensive and kind of sucked. But as soon as you got your off-campus pass, you bolted and you went to McDonald's and Burger King, even though, you know, they're not healthy options, right? But the point is they're cheaper, they're, they're more tasty, right? And that's, that's kind of like the idea of getting out of the 401k and getting away from this, these fee-laden retail products. But other than that, like even if you're investing in real estate through a self-directed IRA or solo 401k, my qualms is kind of like four points. Like the first point is like, I think most of us listening, like our net worth and our incomes are going to be increasing even after you leave your day job. So tax bracket today will likely be lower than in the future. So it makes sense to pay your taxes now today. Second point, you know, the way the government's going to pay for all these like government programs, I mean, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to inflate the money supply, which is an insidious way of, you know, making money, but they're also going to raise taxes more than likely, right? So if you believe that, pull your money out, get it out now, pay your taxes today when when the tax brackets are lower. Thirdly, um, you know, I don't want to wait 20. 65, 70 years old, right? Like most of the people are able to passively invest that have a net worth of a million dollars or more within five to 10 years, right? Which, you know, you don't want to wait till the government says you can get it. And then lastly, here's the big kicker that I think a lot of people don't realize. When, when you invest in deals that do cost segregations, you get the bonus depreciation. Now you're afforded these levers to pull, right? You take the passive activity losses, or we call them PALs, and they stay suspended until you activate them and use them against passive income. Some people can implement real estate professional status and rep strategy to offset ordinary income. Like a lot of the doctors do this, right? Um, of course, you know, consult your CPA. Um, Brandon Hall's uh, real estate CPA is a great one for this, by the way. I think he had like a three-part series on the whole dang thing. But I mean, like if I'm investing in real estate, and first thing, majority of my portfolio is real estate, right? I'm getting the tax advantage tax tax free anyway, right? Because that passive losses offset my income and then some. So I don't need to throw it into a retirement account where I'm getting a tax shelter, right? So that negates all the benefits of that. But what I get by investing cash is that now I get the ability to get get these passive losses up front to me. So I, it allows me options, right? Maybe I want to do some land conservation easements, right? Maybe I or want to go after rep status and use my passive losses bucket and dump it out and extinguish my passive gains. Like if I invest cash, this gives me the opportunity and options to do this. But if I invest my retirement account, I don't get any of those passive activity losses. I can't use them. And that's the big thing. It gives me options from a tax perspective um, based on how things change in the future. So to me, I don't see any reason to use those retirement accounts unless you're investing in something non-tax advantage, such as life settlement um, deals or um, you know things that give you ordinary income or like crypto. And that's what you do your crypto stuff out of. So if you already have a 401k, 
what do you recommend doing with that? Yeah, so if you have the 401k, like what I usually help my clients do is like we kind of leak out the money slowly. So we look at their AGI. At this time, you know, like the, the tax brackets really jump up from 24 to 32%, around $330,000 adjusted gross income. Mary filed joint. I think if you're single, it's kind of hard because it's like 150000 It's not that high. But let's just talk married file jointly. So we look at your AGI. Say it's like two, 230, right? We're like, okay, cool. Now we can take it up to 330 and not get killed on taxes. So that's 100 grand by increasing it. So we'll take 100 grand from our retirement account slowly. But what if the, the guy has a whole boat? <laughs> like he's a good saver. He's got like half a million, million dollars in his 401k. Well, we might do it a little faster. The only reason we're, uh, to me, and, and, you know, every situation is different, right? But, but I think the only reason why you'd want to use a solo 401k or self-directed Roth or self-directed IRA is if you have a boatload in your 401k or retirement. So boatload is defined to me as half a million dollars or greater. <laughs> You're already in that crush zone. Like your AGI is already like 330 and above. So like you take a dollar out of your 401k or whatever, you're going to get killed already. So then it's like a, a game of like, it could go either way, right? Like you, you can either like kick, basically by doing the solo 401k, you kick the can forward. But man, are those things expensive, right? And the fees add up over time, which is why I'm not a big fan of them. But for some people, they just may want to kick the can forward, especially if they're new to passive investing. They haven't gotten that proof of concept. They haven't gotten into four, five, six deals with good sponsors and got in a good like track record going with their spouse, right? Like showing them that actually works before you start to dump money out of your retirement account. Because I get it. You taking money out of your retirement account is an absolute sin, right? Is what we've been told. Like I, I've been investing since 2009 and it took me to like, I didn't take out my 401k until it was like 2013 or 14. Like I knew it made total sense. But like, I felt like, I don't know, I was just committing like a crime or something like that. Everyone was yeah. like, no, don't do that. So I get it. It's hard because it's against what everyone has always taught you, right? You never touch that 401k money until you are done and retired. And just, just for clarity, when you're talking about taking out some 100000 a year, or if they have the boatload, I love the boatload definition of $500,000. Very scientific, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So there, you still have to pay taxes and a penalty on that. You're going to make that up as you put it into active or, or passive real estate investments. Right, Is that right. kind of the philosophy? I mean, you pay that 10% penalty, but I don't like how they call it penalty, right? It's like penalty. You're going to get like penalized. Like, well, you know, you pay your 10%, but like if you're investing in good assets that make, you know, try and double your money every five years. I mean, shoot, that 10% is you're going to recoup that in six to 18 months anyway. And it's all gravy yeah, from it, there. I mean, do the numbers. The numbers tell you what to do. The numbers don't lie. It's a freedom pass. It gets you out of that locked in thing. And now you're free with that money. It's 10% freedom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, I think you want to be tax smart, right? Because some people, they're like, ah, screw this 401k stuff, right? I, I read the purple book, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I listened to some podcasts. I watched some webinars. I'm just deploying like crazy, like a madman into like good deals that make sense, that cash flow, they're hard assets. But then like they take a whole boatload of their boatload from their boatload out of their retirement account. And now they have to pay like 32%. My opinion is like, all right, well, you know, I'm not a fan of that 401k, that those investments, but like, let's leak this stuff out slowly. Let's be smart and prudent, right? 
And if a client is like, Lane, I just freaked out by the stock market, right? The inflation has obviously made the stock market inflate to the levels they are. I am just, I cannot live with myself with my, that much money in that system. I'm like, all right, well, maybe that's where like a land conservation easement comes in to kind of whack out that taxable burden. And at that point, you know, I think that's where you have to like, you know, that's where your network comes into play, right? Who to work with. Because if you Google something like that, it'll just get flamed like crazy. Like, do not do that. But that's where right. your network comes in. And, you know, I mean, probably I should probably say I'm not, I'm not a CPA or a tax attorney. I'm just a engineer who did this, you know, for a dozen so years. And these are what me and my folks do. So. No, it's it, it's great advice, but like you said, you check with your CPA and make sure that that it's right for you. So you also talk about three rules of investing and talked about income, leverage, and tangible value. Can you explain what those rules are? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of real estate. I don't like pretty properties and that into it. But why do I invest in real estate? I mean, it's a hard asset, something real. It's not like a stock, which is based on like the emotions of the market and perceptions and expectations, which God knows what they are. It's uh, real estate is very leverageable, especially you know, in syndications or buying own properties, getting good debt, especially like long-term Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, non-recourse debt. It's amazing. I mean, the government's almost begging you to do it. And then it gives you income, right? There's not many things that hit on all those three fronts, right? Like gold, Gold's a hard asset, I give it that, but it doesn't produce income and it's not leverageable and it certainly doesn't have the tax benefits that real estate does. Crypto, I mean, you could probably make the argument that's a hard asset in some strange way. At this point, you know, you're not making the income unless you're doing some kind of staking thing, but I don't know, it's just too volatile and you don't get the tax benefits, right? A lot of people come to me and they, they made like a couple million dollars. I'm like, well, good for you. You got to pay the government half, right? <laughs> like. I like you guys because you guys pay all my taxes for me. Like I don't pay too much taxes personally because it's all offset by all the paper phantom losses. Yeah, and that, that's the power of real estate. I think is is the the leverage, the income, as you said, it's tangible, but also the the tax benefits. You really can't beat the tax benefits because taxes are probably the, the largest eroder of your wealth that there is. So if you can find a way to legally not pay taxes or reduce your taxes or defer your taxes, that's all just money in your pocket. I always try and think all the time, like, you know, am I getting stuck in a, the real estate groupie world of, you know, real estate's the best and like, am I getting sucked into group thing? Like, what is the really the best thing that is the best risk adjusted returns? That's also tax, you know, tax in the best way. And I just keep coming back to like workforce housing apartments or things that help out the lower middle class. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm always trying to like, you know, not get into that, getting so dogmatic about one thing. That's really smart is to always be thinking, okay, this is what I think is the right thing. This is what I think I should be doing. Looking elsewhere to check and make sure that, yes, that still holds true. It, it's still where I should be. Real estate is still best asset class. And I, I, I believe it is. But I think if you, as you said, get too focused on it and you don't think about, hey, what are some other things out there, then, then you are in danger of just becoming group think and, and having straight line thinking and, and not and missing other opportunities. Right, right. I mean, I think another like mistake I see a lot of passive investors make is they get into this world and now they're already like running around like a buffet in Las Vegas, right? Like I want the Asian food, I want the Mexican food, I want the pasta. Like I want the multifamily apartments, I want the eight class apartments, I want the self storage, I want the mobile home park. They just never really do a really good job of vetting who they work with and they kind of just run around and just get a smorgasbord of stuff. I mean, 
the way I've done is like I learn multifamily for years and then I maybe dabble in something else, but only after I've met somebody in multifamily that also invests in that. So I have that proc, I call it the investor proxy, right? I've built a relationship with another passive investor, me and him or her see eye to eye. I respect them as a passive investor. And then we build that relationship saying, oh, who are you investing? Right. Oh, you know, I'm, I, I went into this deal with the self-storage operator four years ago. It worked out. All right. Well, I don't know anything about self-storage, but I'm going to copy what they do. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a that's a great strategy because I know when I started in passive investing, I, I was at the uh, the smorgasbord, you know, eating all of the different kinds of foods. I called the shiny object. I was I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, then I kind of backed up and realized, OK, let, let's figure out a, a path that makes more sense. And that is again, building a network, finding a community and talking to others and, and figuring out where the best places to put your money are. And and it's not where I initially thought it was. But now, like you, I feel like I've found a couple asset classes that I really like. And that's where I'm putting my time and efforts. Yeah. I mean, people come in and they have a you know, million dollars of disposable assets that's stuck in their retirement and they may be pressured to get it out because they finally realize what a sham their retirement 401k retail investments are. But I tell people like, you know, try a few deals out at the minimum, just sit and wait for six to 18 months and see how it goes before you start to invest more of the mother load. Yeah. The reason why I say six to 18 months is like, you want to see monthly updates. You want to see how they perform, which is hard because some guys, what they do is they, they feed the prep, right? They raise extra capital to pay out investors like a Ponzi scheme. Um, so it's really hard to determine, right? Like what's legit, even when you are in a deal too. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think one of the best pieces of advice I got recently was when you invest with a, a new a new sponsor or a new asset class, you know, before you invest in the second deal with that sponsor, that asset class, wait, as you said, six to 18 months or a year just to, to see, because there's no, it's not like other investments where you, you, you can find out quickly if it's going to work or not. It's, you know, it might be a five or 10 year deal. So you might not know anything for a year, or even longer to know how it's been progressing, but you could monitor the communications you get from the syndicator. Are they paying out the amounts that they said they would in the fashion they said they would? So there are ways you can check, but it's not its not like other investments where you can look at your bank balance and go, oh yeah, I have more money now than I did before. Right. And, and you know, most of us are doing this are in their 40s and 50s. And I tell them, it's like, well, you know, you, you did the other stuff for like 20, 30 years. Like what difference does it make if you just do it a little bit more slower? delay yourself. And I think that's where like, if somebody has more than half a million of liquidity, maybe that's where infinite banking comes in, right? Because that kind of helps you kind of feed that, get that infinite banking system going for a couple of years. It slows you down, right? Into something that's more guaranteed for now. But so when you do get your proof of concept, which are several first deals, then you can like, you have that infinite banking are returning. You're already in the second, third year. And then now you can invest from there. Uh, which is always a, a good tactic that I think a lot of passive investors employ. But that's a way of like kind of taking the edge off, right? Because I get it. Once you realize that the Wizard of Oz isn't real, this red pill of finance world, you get really antsy because you're like, oh, shoot, I got to deploy the money, you know, because they're not working for me. Like even worse, like you have all this equity in your home, in your home, which is like the worst thing to do. And like, you're like, oh, shoot, I got to get that working because that's what's sapping me. That's exactly what all these guys want me to do with my money is not have it work. So I have to work at my day job for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. And it, it is hard. It's exciting when you first learn about syndications and say you have a pot of money. It, it's hard to put the restrictors on and not just allocate it all at once. And so 
I think the infinite banking, which, you know, just so everyone understands is using some kind of life insurance, maybe whole life insurance to kind of fuel your other investments. Um, that's a, that's a great way of slowing down and also just take your time and realize that, as you said, you've, you've accumulated this money over years and years. So allocate it over a few years and, and you'll be much better off, I think. Right. Like, I mean, I've, I've had people in my mastermind group invest a million dollars in nine months and you know, I think they got lucky. Like, I mean, I think part of it is they, they have that community, right? But it's not what I suggest. So not what I would do personally, if it were me just jumping right into the game, just trying to dip your toe and get proof of concept first. That, that makes complete sense to me. So we're, uh, we're closing out on, on time here. The, the last question I always ask is, um, what's a podcast uh, that you listen to or, or one that you, you like other than, of course, your own, which is the uh, Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast? I'll put that in the show notes. But what's another one that you like? I like the book Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. I think that's like the start and pretty much the only book people should read. I think people read too many books and they listen to too many podcasts. I don't really listen to podcasts and I'm going to take another counterintuitive approach here. I mean, if you've been listening to podcasts for more than a year or two, it's the same old stuff. I mean, it's just a bunch of marketing. I think other than left field investors, which is more geared toward passive investors, it's not really trying to sell you on anything. People have realized podcasts are a great way to raise capital. And it's kind of, you know, devalued the platform. And if you're kind of in that land of, you know, after the first year, spend your time, your, your guys' time. If you guys really make six figures and you're passive investors, your guys' time is more valuable than listening to the same thing over and over after six to 12 months. So, you know, I, I follow this rubric of the 70-20-10 rule. You know, 70% is doing it, which is equivalent of like investing in deals, getting, you know, proof of concept. 20% is talking to other people, which I think people should spend more time on. Only 10% is the academic stuff, which is books and podcasts, right? So if you find yourself flip this pyramid upside down, you need to start doing the other things, which actually taking action. But if you're not ready for that, I like, focus on that 20%, which is talking to people, and which I know is scary, right? We all like to just listen to our little AirPods and wash the dishes and you know, do our own little thing and not talk to anybody. You know, we're all used to not like putting on pants and shaking people's hands these days, and getting out there. But that's how the relationships happen. I mean, it's it's how I've met most of my organic relationships is not like on a platform, but it's at like at the bar at a you know late night. You know, getting to know people. That's where the road meets the road. If you're unable to build relationships with people, you're not a people purpose person. Well, that's what the crowdfunding websites are for, which charge the sponsors a boatload of money to put their deals up on there. And I don't invest in them, but they do provide a purpose, right? For people who are unable to build relationships. Yeah. And I, I can't stress enough the last year and a half or so when we left field investors, it's really proven to me that, you know, your network, your community, the people you talk to, it really does help you and and you know you got to get out there and as you said meet people and and interact with them because that that's the way you learn and that's the way you become a better investor so listen this has been a, a great episode and and i appreciate all your insights a lot of it is a little bit different than the things that we're used to hearing and i really appreciate that and i like that so thank you very much for being a part of this if our listeners want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that yeah um they can go check out my podcast i started with turnkeys but lately as became more of a credit investor the last few years the, the tune has turned more to tax and investing in deals as accredited investor so that's the simple passive cash flow podcast and um my website simple passive cash flow.com and my email address is lane at simple passive cash flow.com 
Perfect. I will put that all in the show notes. And uh, thank you for being part of the show. We appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. I enjoyed my conversation with Lane today. He has a very interesting approach to vetting sponsors. He has two main ways he does it. First, he analyzes deals from the sponsor. And the other thing he does is he uses his network to find sponsors. So the first, analyzing the deal, that allows him to screen out sponsors that don't meet his criteria without, as he said, wasting his time talking to them. So that's a really interesting and new approach that I hadn't heard before. The second way, using your network, you know, that's something we do here at Left Field Investors as well. And I think that's just incredibly smart is you use people you know, like, and trust to find other people you they know, like, and trust, and then that, that trust transfers. And that's, I think, one of the best ways to find sponsors. Some of the other interesting things we talked about, you know, he has his three rules for investing, and that means finding investments that provide you with income, that use leverage, and are tangible assets. And that really falls into what we believe at Left Field Investors as well, that you want real assets that are going to produce real income, and leverage is an extra part of it. So we totally agree on that. The other thing he was talking about are some of the metrics that he looks at for multifamily investments. And we talked about cap rate reversion, rent growth, and economic vacancies. And those are things that I also agree are important. And those are some of the first things I look for when analyzing a deal. And in fact, all three of those are major components of the deal analyzer that we use in the infield. So it was a great time talking to Lane, and I definitely hope we connect again. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.